Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. Every week it gets harder and harder to preach after that stuff. Amen. There's just too much cuteness coming out of the screen. Amen. There's too much cuteness in there. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Just a couple things before uh, I get started in our message today. Uh, number one, I had said a couple weeks ago uh, that I was going to update the congregation on where we were at with our thank offering in uh, this past Friday's uh, Happenings newsletter, and I forgot to do that. Um, I know I did get an update, um, but I was just looking for it in my email, and I can't find it right now. But um, here's what I remember. I remember that we're quite a ways actually behind where we wanted to be in our thank offering. I think we were around maybe $20,000. We're trying to raise $58,000. And we have been considerably behind in our giving this year as well. So I just put that out there to the whole congregation, all of you online as well, um, so that you'll know and ask God if you have a part to play in getting us to a healthy point as we end 2020 and go into the new year of 2021. So that's kind of an update uh, on our giving. Amen. And I also want to say this. um, Bob, as he was praying, prayed about a little girl. Her name is Zipporah Gray. Uh, Zipporah, her dad is Recap, who preached here not long ago, one of my close, the closest people to me in the world. Uh, they've been going through an awful lot. And uh, I heard yesterday that Zipporah uh, was not doing well with pneumonia in the hospital. And today I heard that she is actually on a ventilator uh, in the hospital. This is in Iowa. So I do ask your prayers for Zipporah Gray, for her family going through this very, very difficult time. Uh, and the last thing that I'm going to share before we get into the message today is this. Um, we have been through, like everyone else, the ups and downs of COVID in terms of what our gatherings look like. We were completely online for quite some time with no live anything happening. Uh, that changed back in August where we went back to live services and we were at a point uh, a while back where we had 60 people in this room and it was beautiful. It felt like it was 500. Uh, but uh, now because of the surge, we're going backwards again. And uh, as of next week, it will just be people who are a part of putting on the service that will be here. We want to do that because we, we want to care for absolutely everybody in our community and don't want to expose anyone needlessly to um, this virus that has taken so many lives. So uh, starting next week, it will just be people who are helping to put on the service that will be here. And we pray. I, I am looking forward to the day to see this place filled up. Amen. Filled up to the brim with people worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe that day is coming, but it's not here yet. And in the meantime, we need to uh, do everything that we can to love our neighbor well. Wearing a mask is loving your neighbor. Amen. Amen. I'm not wearing mine now because I'm very far away from everyone. But 
Amen. Amen. With that, let's go into uh, this final message uh, this week. Some of y'all are happy. Oh my goodness. He's finishing up lament. I'm so happy about that. You're rejoicing at the end of the lament sermons. I get it. So am I. Amen. Amen. But, but here's the thing that you need to see and you need to understand. If you get lament right, if you, if you really embrace it and understand the biblical language of what lament looks like, the natural end of lament, and that's my uh, sermon today, the end of lament is rejoicing. The end of biblical lament is rejoicing in the Lord, and it's a depth of rejoicing that you never get if you don't go through this process. And so for a hot second, I just want to look at, at, at four parts of lament. I'm looking at it in a different way today, but if you could put that up there, the four parts of lament. Number one, lament looks. Number two, lament listens. Number three, lament looks back. And number four, lament leads. And we're going to look at each one of those. Actually, the first two of them I've already preached on. So I'm just going to recap those and we'll go into the other two. But let's take time for a moment. Those of you who are here, stand with me and let's read from the word of God. We're not going to read. We're going through this whole third chapter of Habakkuk today. But we're just going to read together from this great song at the end of this chapter, this great song from verses 17 through the first part of verse 19. So if you're here with us, let's read together the word of God. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for your word. And we pray that, that the full effect of your word would be felt in our hearts, that it would quicken our minds to know you more and to search for you even more, Lord God, in difficult times. Lord, be with us right now and by your spirit do the work that you want to do in each and every one of your people. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The end of lament, you can be seated. The end of lament is suffering. And so I want to start by just reviewing real quickly. Number one, lament looks. I said lament looks. And, and lament looks at the full reality of your pain, the full reality of your anguish. Lament is not afraid to look at the struggle and not look away and find a quick way out. We saw that in the first chapter of Habakkuk as he cries out to God, how long, O oh Lord, how long will I cry out violence? Do I have to see it with my eyes? And God responds to him and then he, 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 he laments once again. He pours out his heart because he looks at the reality of the situation and he does not sugarcoat it. 
Lament doesn't put perfume on the pig to make it smell good. Amen. Lament knows this is bad. This is rough. I don't like this. And this is why this whole idea of lament is so countercultural to us in 21st century Western context. We don't like to lament. We like to find a quick way out. So here's what I want you to see. You can't microwave your lament. There's no drive through lament. Lament starts with an invitation from God to fully explore your pain, your anguish, your frustration, your hurt, your struggle without the luxury of a quick feel-good hit of something to take the edge off. Lament brings you right there. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've got to deal with the truth of just how hard it is, just how bad it is, how terrible it feels. You've got to deal with that. Lament looks at the pain. It deals with the pain. We live in a world under the curse of sin. But we said already, lament doesn't stop there. Hallelujah. Secondly, lament listens. Lament Listens when 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 your, your your words are all spent and you got no more words when, when, when your tears are done and there's no more tears left. Lament postures itself to listen for a word from the Lord. Amen. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. In Habakkuk chapter 2. And here's what you need to see. If you don't take the posture of listening, then what you're doing is not biblical lament. It's not. It, it, it may be something else. It may be something, and this is a, this is a, a technical theological word. Theologians use this word. It, it might not be lament. It might be what the theologians call a hissy fit. Amen. Amen. Anyone ever had a hissy fit with the Lord? I know I've had I have I've had more than one, more than two, more than a few. But we've got to be careful that we're not confusing our hissy fits with real biblical lament. Our murmuring and our complaining with biblical lament, our ungodly anger with biblical lament. Here it is. Lament is ugly. Lament is raw. It's honest. But it's always, always working itself out in relationship with God. Say to someone else that's somewhere around you, always, always. Lament is always working itself out in relationship with God. As ugly and raw as it is. You see, lament is never an independent exercise because lament is God's call into relationship with himself. So when we lament, we're looking to God and waiting to hear from him. Now, that's our recap of the first two weeks on Habakkuk. And now we're going into this final chapter, chapter three of Habakkuk. And the third point here, our first one really for today is this lament looks back. Lament looks back. It looks back to the gracious acts 
of God in history. Lament looks back after it's heard from God and says, God, I'm going to remember what you've done. God, I'm not forgetting what you've done. I'm going to look back and I'm going to see and I'm going to focus on what my God has done. Look, look at verse 2 in Habakkuk chapter 3. He says these words, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. He says, repeat them. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. And I love the last part of this prayer. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Remember where Habakkuk is. He is in Jerusalem, in this place where the greatest national tragedy they've ever imagined has now come upon them. And in that time, listening to God, he chooses to remember and to look back to God's saving acts towards his people. In your wrath, Lord, remember mercy. To get this again, we, we need to think about what this situation was for the prophet and for the people of Jerusalem. Their, their, their city is surrounded by an army a thousand times more powerful than its own. People are now starving in the city. There's no food coming in the city. There's seemingly no way out of this situation and there is no earthly power. There's no cavalry coming over the hill. And in the midst of that situation, the prophet cries out, Lord, in wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. You see, in, in, in that situation, he has inclined his ear to hear from God, to hear the word of the Lord. We saw that in chapter 2. Somebody needs to get that right now in the midst of your difficult situation to posture yourself to hear from God. Whatever you are going through, you need to incline your ear and hear God say what only God can say. Because you need to know that when God says what only God can say, that what anyone else says, including what you say to yourself, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Because God has said what God says. He's the one who can back up what he says. God didn't tell him. Now, look at this. God didn't tell him how he would save. God didn't tell him when he would save. If you consider this little book, this prophet Habakkuk, he probably never actually saw with his eyes the salvation of God. But he did see it. You see, he saw it but not with his physical eyes, but he saw it because he looked back, he remembered God, and he looked forward knowing that the same God that saved us out of the Red Sea, the same God that brought us out of Pharaoh's Egypt, the same God that delivered us from the Midianites and from the Ammonites and from the Jebusites, that same God will deliver us again. He knew he would deliver. I want you to Walk with me for a second. Isn't that the way God usually works in our lives? God is not obliged to give you and I the details. 
He doesn't need to let you know when and how. The whens and the hows that we just want to know. I want to know that right now. But he doesn't have to give you that information. And most of the time, he doesn't give you that information. But here's what he does. He lets you know that he hears you. Amen. He, he, he lets you know that he loves you and he lets you know that he's got you. You get it? My goodness. God is always wrapped up in mystery. He doesn't give us all the details we want, but he lets us know I am here. We've got to learn to live with that mystery. Habakkuk got a word, and I pray that you get this word as well. God has told him that in his wrath, he is remembering mercy. He will save his people. And so Habakkuk is now responding to God by remembering God. Beloved, I want you to get this. Responding by remembering. Say to someone that's near you, and even if you're by yourself somewhere, just say, you got to respond. You got to respond. You got to respond by remembering. You got to respond by remembering. And look, at this is not just remembering some things that God has done in your life. That's good to do. Remember his faithfulness in your life. But it's more than that. It's remembering the great triumphs of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the triune God over creation, all that he has done, his powerful hand at work. And what he is saying in that verse that we just read, he says, repeat them in our day. He's saying, do it again, Lord, do it again. And that needs to be our prayer today. Do it again, Lord, do it again. Lord, you've overturned the schemes of the devil in the past. Do it again, Lord, do it again. Lord, you've overcome sickness, you've overcome plagues, you've overcome diseases in the past, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Lord, you have come to a people who were riddled with division and with strife, and it seemed impossible that there would ever be unity among the people. It was utterly impossible, but you, God, brought them together. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Listen, we're not looking to any secular prince, any secular president, any secular political realm to do it, but God can do that among and in his people. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Habakkuk's prayer is our prayer. In your wrath, remember mercy. If you know yourself a little bit, you know (laughs) you deserve the judgment of God. You don't deserve God's love and kind hand, but that's the God we serve. He's a God of love, a God of kindness, so much so that there's a word in the Bible, chesed, which is translated in some places, loving kindness. You just put it all together. He's the covenant loving God. We don't deserve anything but his wrath, but in his wrath, he remembers mercy. He looks on our nation in your wrath, Lord, Remember mercy, because we don't deserve anything good from your hand. 
Even the church, even this church, our prayer is in your wrath. Remember mercy. Remember mercy, God. And he does. And so in this chapter, verses 3 through 15, we see Habakkuk responding to God by remembering him. What's described in these verses is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is simply God showing up in a way that is tangible. So usually we think of God, the invisible God. He is invisible. We can't see God. But in a theophany, in one way or another, God shows up in a tangible way that we can see, we can touch, we can feel, we, we can experience God in a tangible way. And that's what's happening here in verses 3 through 15. There's a theophany. And so uh, God shows up. It's no longer just his invisible presence, but making himself known in a tangible way. So he says in verse 4, his splendor was like the sunrise, raised flash from his hand where his power was hidden. Verse five says, plagues went before him. Pestilence followed in his steps. He's beginning to talk about how God delivers the people out of Egyptian bondage. He's remembering that. He's seeing that. He's experiencing that as he looks back and remembers the greatness of his God. So this uh, uh, the vision of God, this understanding of God, this theophany of God is real to the prophet in this time. And he sees Yahweh's sovereign hand over all things. Yahweh is the sovereign over his creation. First of all, he sees in, we see in this theophany that Yahweh is sovereign over the mountains, over all of natural creation. Now, when you think of mountains, we think of them in different ways, but in the ancient Near East, people thought of mountains as the place you go up the mountain to meet with your God. Whatever God that may be. Now, people still do that today. Christians even do that. And there's nothing wrong with going up a prayer mountain. I know people that do that in Africa, in Korea, in different places. They go up the prayer mountain to meet with God. But the idea in the, nat- in the ancient Near East was you go up this mountain and you have a particular God that you're going to meet with. You can go up on your particular mountain and meet with your God. But in verse 6, the scripture says this, the ancient mountains crumbled at the age and the age old hills collapsed. But he, Yahweh, God, marches on forever. What is he saying? He's saying that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the great I am, rules over every other God. And there's no one that can stand up against him. He rules over his creation. Secondly, not only is Yahweh sovereign over the mountains, but he is sovereign over the seas. The sea in the Bible represents a place of confusion, a place of chaos, a place of death. Look at verse 8. It says, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? He recalls Israel here being led through the Red Sea on dry land. 
destroying Pharaoh's army and setting his people free. In the New Testament, we see Jesus at one point during a storm on the Sea of Galilee actually walking on the sea, walking on during that storm, and he is declaring that he is the Lord over the sea. He is the Lord over chaos. He is the Lord over death. He is the Lord over all. He rules over the sea, so much so, brothers and sisters, in the new creation, the book of Revelation tells us that there will be no more sea. God is all and in all. There will be no more sea, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because God is all in all. Habakkuk sees in this uh, this theophany, he sees that Yahweh is sovereign over the seas. And then thirdly, he sees that Yahweh is sovereign over the sun and the moon. They serve Yahweh. They serve the living God. In the ancient Near East, the sun and the moon were recognized as God figures in almost every other culture. They had powers. The sun and the moon were to be feared. They were to be served. But interestingly, when you come to the creation account in Genesis, sun and moon are not even named by their names. They're not called the sun and the moon in Genesis. They're called the greater light and the lesser light. What's going on? See, all the other uh, creation narratives from the ancient Near East Talk about the sun and the moon and the powers they have and look at them as either gods or demigods, some kind of godlike power in those substances. God said, no, it's the greater light and the lesser light. And Yahweh is the one who made them. He put them in place. He put everything in place. He is the sovereign over all. So they're not even mentioned by name. Look at that verse. Sun and moon stood still. No, go back. Verse 11 Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. He's recalling the Lord's work in Joshua chapter 10, where they were overcoming the Ammonites and God stops the sun and the moon in their tracks so that God's people can finish the work that God has given them to do on that day. He prolongs the day. God is the God over everything. He is the sovereign of all. And so now this great truth that that God is sovereign over creation, but the end of this is not just for God to show off his power in creation. It is to save a people for himself. Amen. So that's the next verse. I want you to look at verse 13. He says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to toe. Habakkuk remembers how God saved his people. He saves, this verse says, His anointed one. You saved your anointed one. The Hebrew for that is Mashiach. You saved your Mashiach. In Greek, that word is Christos, where we get Christ. Verse 13, the words translated here, uh, deliver at the beginning of the verse. You deliver your people. And then later he says to save 
your anointed one. It's actually the same word there in Hebrew, Yesha. It's where we get the Hebrew name uh, Yeshua. Jesus is Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the anointed one that saves. This is a picture of Jesus as the anointed one who saves his people. He says, you save your anointed one. Habakkuk remembers who Yahweh is. He is the one who saves his anointed. Uh, I love this, brothers and sisters. In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in this verse where it says anointed one, in, in, in the Septuagint, it's in the plural. Anointed ones. You're anointed ones. It's interesting. In Psalm 105, verse 15, the scripture says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. It's not talking about the preacher when it says, do not touch my anointed ones. It's talking about all the people of God, right? And so he's saying, do not touch my anointed ones. But here's what you need to see. The anointed one and the anointed ones are linked together. We're only the anointed ones because of the anointed one. Because you're in Jesus Christ, you are the anointed ones. Amen? It's in Christ that we are the anointed ones. Finally, in verse 14, we see a picture of the ultimate victory over the enemy. He says, with his own spear, you pierced his head. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When I see that, two biblical images come to mind. The first is from the book of Judges. The book of Judges where there's a woman named Jael and she's following the instructions of the prophet and the judge Deborah. And she puts the evil general Sisera to death by taking a tent peg and crushing his head with it, putting it right through his head. It's a nasty thing, y'all. But, but the general came and he was tired and he was thirsty and he said, give me some water to drink. She gives him warm milk to drink. And then he falls asleep. She puts a blanket over him and then pop, he's gone. Amen. So he, she crushes the head of this evil general who's trying to destroy God's people. But we also get the picture from Genesis chapter three of God's destroying work on the enemy of our souls over the serpent. And he says, yeah, that serpent may hurt you a little bit. He may mess with your toe, but you will crush his head. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. God will have ultimate victory and no one can stop him. He remembers what God has done and what God will promise to do. And he says, do it again, Lord, do it again. I hope you can see this now. After lament, he listens to God and responds by remembering God's great salvation. To Habakkuk and the saints of the Old Testament, they look back 
at how God had saved them through the exodus, how God had freed them from their oppressors. But we look back to the life, to the death, to the resurrection, and to the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming back again. Amen. And just like Habakkuk remembered the God who saved them through the Red Sea, we remember that Jesus has overcome death, hell, and the grave by his resurrection, and he is coming back again for his own. Amen. Lament looks back. It remembers. And the last thing here, lament leads. Lament leads ultimately to hope rejoicing. Lament looks, lament listens, lament looks back, but ultimately lament leads. Lament leads to this hope-filled rejoicing. Wherever you are today, whatever your situation is, even if this is a time, and I know it is for many, of deep sorrow, You need to understand that ultimately, true lament leads to hope-filled rejoicing. Why? Here's why. Because lament is the God-ordained means of grasping on to the God who can do anything but fail. True lament is the super glue of your relationship with God. Even the name of this prophet, Habakkuk, comes from a Hebrew word that means embrace. Lament is to embrace God, is to be close with God. He's not far away, even in your pain, even in your sorrow, even in your difficulty. And so Habakkuk writes this beautiful hymn, verses 17 through 19, that we've read already. Words filled with hope. Though the fig tree, in the way I learned it, does not blossom, and there's no fruit on the vine. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. He says, though there's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, he says, yet, that little word, yet, Though it's this bad, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I hope you can see it. Verse 17 is the doomsday scenario for a person in uh, this culture, uh, in, in the ancient Near East, where they are dependent upon agriculture and food. And so we look at things like olives and figs and we say well that doesn't seem like such a big deal to me but God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey a land that was an abundant land a land that outpaced any other land that was what God had promised them and here they are in this place poverty they're destitute in this agrarian society nothing to eat. Let, let's put that in 2020 terms. Though the Acme's closed down, though the ShopRite has no food, the Save-A-Lot and the Wegmans are gone, the IGA is destitute, and this is going to hurt somebody, the Aldi's has nothing on its shelves. Now this one's going to hurt me. And though every corner store in Philadelphia is dried up, that hurts me, y'all. 
If the Reading Terminal and the farmer's markets have no food in them, if Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa and Wisconsin and California and Lancaster County can't produce one bit of food at all, yet I will still praise you. That's what he's saying. Now, we may be able to say that in a very hypothetical Matter of fact, so hypothetical that I know it could never happen to me kind of way. We might be able to say that words because, look, we live in America. and Certainly nothing like that could ever happen to us. But Habakkuk is not talking about a hypothetical situation, an unlikely situation, but he's talking about his lived reality. This is what is going on all around him. Certainly that can't happen here, right? Did you ever in your wildest dreams dream of 2020? I see most heads shaking. No, I never dreamed that we'd be where we're at now. I don't know what 2021 will bring. We are anticipating great change with a vaccine But brothers and sisters, if 2020 hasn't taught you that you don't know what could happen, then you haven't gotten that part of the lesson. We don't know. But here's what we do know. God is still sovereign over all things. People are dying. They're starving. And Habakkuk utters this prayer. He sings this song. It's a song. At the end, he gives instructions for the musicians. And at the beginning, it's a song. In spite of all his senses that that tell him there's no hope, he holds on to hope. He says, God is good. I want to come over here for just one second. Because I want to sing a little song. See, I got to come over here to sing. It's an old gospel song that that puts it this way. He's an all-time God. Yes, he is. Oh, oh, oh. he's an all-time God. Yes, he is. And then the song says this. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. He's an on-time God. Oh, gosh. Yes, he is. I'm going to stop right here. He's an on-time God. He's an on-time God. Here is Habakkuk 2,700 years ago in the midst of death and calamity. And he's singing that song. He's an on-time God. I hope you hear me today. The end of lament is not giving up on God. The end of lament is giving in to God. It's believing that God is big enough. That God is good enough. That God is great enough. That God is glorious enough. That God is enough. Enough. The end of lament for Habakkuk was the enoughness of God. And God's enoughness is the place of rejoicing. He declares that even in the middle of the mess, even in the want, even in the lack, he says, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. It's a choice. I will rejoice. Somebody needs to hear that today, right now. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give God praise. 
Listen, if Jesus makes the difference in our lives, in the end, we will be known as a people who rejoice when it doesn't make any sense. Amen? So brothers and sisters, don't mind me right now if I just start to rejoice a little right now in the middle of COVID, in the middle of a surge, I will rejoice. In the middle of national strife, in the middle of disunity, I will rejoice. In the middle of not knowing what to do, I will rejoice. Why? Because my God is enough. We got to praise God right through this thing. Musicians can come up now. But I want to close the way that Habakkuk closes. In verse 19, he puts it this way. In verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He says he makes my feet like that of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You see that picture there on the left is a dam that is 160 feet high. It's in the northern Alps. It's called the Singino Dam in northern Italy. And those little dots you see on that dam at nearly 90 degrees and 160 feet high, those are deer. They're called ibex goats that climb up on that sheer wall in order to get salt deposits and other minerals that they need for their bodily systems. They climb up that sheer wall to get something that they need from it. The people who live near there say they're addicted to it. There can be a whole, uh, a whole herd of sheep, of ibex goats on that wall. How in the world can a goat scale that wall there's only one way god designed them to do it amen their hooves are specifically designed uh, to to be able to get traction where you wouldn't think there is any traction and their inner ear systems have a balancing mechanism like none other on earth that allows them to balance themselves God has designed them to do what is otherwise and what looks to be impossible. And this is what the prophet knows. After his lament, after crying out to God, after listening to God and remembering his words, he knows that just like that deer, he has been designed by the living God to do what seems to be literally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually impossible. He is able because he is the one who designed him because he's been designed by the Lord of the universe to stand in places that he has no business standing. God will enable you to stand when you rest your hope and find your hope in him and him alone to stand where it doesn't make any sense that you could stand. Brothers and sisters, the end of lament is not simply sorrow upon sorrow without ceasing, but the end of lament, because it is God's invitation to know him, is to wrestle with the living God and find the hope that is in him, and you will stand. I want to pray as we close today, because I'm sure that there are people listening to this, that this isn't just some, oh, that's, that's a nice word. I like that. Oh, I like the way he said that. 
but you're in a place of being absolutely overwhelmed. Listen, there's not a shortcut. You got to go through lament. You don't get to go around it. You got to go through it. And maybe you're right in the middle right now. There's not a shortcut. But remember in your lament, posture yourself to hear from God. And then remember what he has done. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today once again. You are an on-time God. Not on our time frame. Certainly not. But Lord, whether we see it with our eyes or not, we will declare that our God is enough. Our God is more than enough. That our God is good. That our God loves his people and will never leave or forsake them. No matter what it looks like to our earthly senses, we declare that you are good. And you're enough all by yourself. So God, minister to your people even now. Help us to learn this language of lament, to not be afraid to go through that valley of the shadow of death. You don't bring us around the valley, but you bring us through it. So Lord, help us to know you in the midst of it, that your name might be glorified in and through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.